Heavenly Father, we believe that you truly are just. Just in who you are and just in all that you do. We hear this passage from Revelation 16 and we saw you descend into the holy temple last week in Revelation 15 ready to judge the living and the dead. We ask this morning, Father, that you would help us to see that you truly are just. That you are good in all that you do. I pray for any of our hearts, Father, that see your righteousness and your justice as cruel or unusual or too severe. I pray this morning you would make that right correction in our hearts and minds. That we would see you as you truly are, the holy God. We would see ourselves as we truly are, sinful through and through. And that we would see, Father, your justice exercised on all those outside of Christ is right and good and true. And I pray, Father, that you would help us have that same desire. Give us grace this morning, Father, to hear these first five bowls with discerning and wise and compassionate ears. We want to be rightly moved by the judgments that are coming. We want to be rightly moved by the lost in our mission field. And we want to be rightly moved to open our mouths, Father, and share with them the gospel of grace that will prevent and stop this horrific end. Give us that this morning, Father. This past week has hardened many of our hearts. We know how the world can do that to us. And so I pray for humility and I pray for love that you would bless us with that this morning. I ask that you would do that, Father, to equip us as a people to be the most brilliant testimony here in this dark place. And I ask it, of course, for your glory. You are worthy. Be glorified now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The title of the sermon is God's Just Judgments. I asked my community group, are, are, are you being weighed down yet by revelation? And most said no, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, in, in the Western world, we talk a lot about justice. Uh, we talk a lot about social justice. That seems to be at the top of the news all the time. Not equal opportunity, but equal distribution of wealth and privileges within our society. That's how justice comes to us. In many ways, justice in the Western world is synonymous now with socialism. Those two are hard to distinguish. But in the Bible, the idea of justice is, is not based upon granting privileges to special groups of people. It's based upon, you already know this, the character and nature of God. So when we talk about justice and we open up scriptures, we see who God is and what God does. The ATS Bible Dictionary defines justice like this. That essential and infinite attribute of God which makes his nature and his ways the perfect embodiment of equity. Perfect justice. And constitutes him as the model and the guardian of equity throughout the universe. So when we talk about justice either in the context of Scripture, the church, or the culture, it better start with who God is and what God has revealed in His Word. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 32, you heard Kirk read it. Moses said it better than the ATS dictionary. He said, oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. In other words, any hope of understanding true justice and true equity in our lives or in the culture must start with who God is and what he has revealed in his word. If we do not start there, we will most certainly pervert justice. And because the Western world has all but forgotten who God is, not only do we struggle with justice in the popular culture, we struggle in the context of the church when we come to a passage like Revelation 16. Because we hear the severity of the bowls, and we even think, wow, that's so hard, that's so severe, that sounds unfair. That sounds unjust. And as soon as we land there, my beloved, we are now imputing injustice to God, which is something we never, ever want to do. Last week, if you were here with us, John's vision in Revelation 15 actually introduced us to the judgment cycle of the bulls. It's the last of the three cycles that we will see in the book of Revelation. It's God's justice being exercised on all those who refuse to repent, believe, and be saved. Now, some argue that the bulls, like the trumpets and the seals, they're taking place between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again in glory. Um, but I think that a, a better understanding would be that the, the cycle of the bulls is the last of the last days. We see in the bulls, unlike the seals or the trumpets, it's universal and it's cataclysmic beyond measure. And therefore, it lends itself to this idea that we're nearing the end. We're nearing the final consummation of God's redemptive plan. And this morning, we're going to be looking at bowls one through five. I didn't do seven because I thought, we're going to be overwhelmed by five, and I didn't want you falling out of your seats. That would have been a mess for us. God's judgments come, we'll see today, upon the earth, the sea, the rivers, the sun, and the throne of the beast. And it is my prayer that the bowls bring us great clarity on the justice God will exercise and the goodness of that justice. It is my prayer that we will see that his judgments are necessary and that we will, we will by his grace rejoice today and in eternity that he actually judges like this, that our hearts will be aligned with his and see, in fact, that if you were perfectly righteous, you too would judge as he judges, even those you love most, even those you dread the thought of being judged. I'd like you to see three things from the passage. Number one, the severity of God's justice. Number two, the justness of God's justice. And number three, the necessity of his justice. The severity, the justness, and the necessity of God's justice. The theme of the sermon is this, God works, God's works are perfect and just. He does no wrong. They're perfect and they're just, and he does no wrong, no matter how hard they are for us to hear or how easy it is for us to misinterpret them. So point number one, I pray you're with me, the severity of God's justice. Look at verse one. This is John speaking now. He said, then I heard a loud voice from the temple. Remember, God had descended in, in smoke into the temple in heaven. So he hears this voice, it's either God's voice or it's the voice of another angel telling the seven angels, go and pour out 
pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So if you remember, one of the four angels that surrounded the throne, they, they gave the seven angels who had seven plagues, they came out of the temple and they gave them seven bowls, seven golden bowls, to turn upside down and pour out completely upon the earth. And so that time has come. The judgment of God, the final judgment of God, is now coming upon sinful man. Look at verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So you hear the first bowl, and if you know Exodus, and most of you I know do since we actually went through it, you think, oh, that's like the sixth plague. The sixth plague in Egypt, remember when God used Moses to bring the painful boils and the sores upon the Egyptians, but the Israelites were pain-free. So this first bowl of pain and suffering, it comes upon, we're told, all those who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So all those who did not repent, believe, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. All those who refused the name of Jesus and the name of the Father to be written upon their foreheads. All those who continue to bow down and worship the creation rather than the creator, remaining in the idolatry of this fallen world, Babylon. For their rebellion, God afflicts them with physical pain and suffering. But because we're dealing with apocalyptic genre, we believe that there's a lot of symbolism here. And so I think we could argue well that Um, We're talking about any type of pain or suffering, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual pain or suffering used by God, now listen, to judge those who refuse to believe. So this is not just suffering in the natural sense. We are sinful creatures living in a sinful fallen world and therefore suffering is our lot. It's beyond that. It's supernatural. It's God wrought. It's God dictated. And so it's brought upon all those who remain at enmity with him. Look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now again, you think, oh wait a second, water turning to blood, I remember that too. That, That was the first plague in Egypt. Remember when, when Moses took his staff and he touched the Nile River and we know the Nile River was the Egyptian source of both water and food, irrigation for their crops, and t- to lose the Nile was to lose the nation. Well, here that same judgment is coming upon the world, not just a single nation. And it, it's a picture of extreme judgment. Now, the, the second and the third angels, when they pour out their, their plague, all the seas, all the rivers, and all the springs, literally all the water on the earth turns to blood. I was trying to think about the Monterey Bay, blood red, or the San Francisco Bay, or, or the Sacramento River, or the Truckee River, or, or you, when you walk into your kitchen and you turn your faucet on and blood came out. It's supposed to be violent to us We know that water is essential for life. Take away water and life on earth, animal, man, plant, ceases quickly. A waterless planet is a deadly planet. And so unlike, this is interesting, unlike the second and third trumpets where one-third of the seas and one-third of the rivers were turned to blood, if you remember, 
in this particular case, the second and third bowls, it is all water. In other words, the picture here is one of decreation. It's God dismantling and taking apart the world he created to sustain life. It's God bringing blood as judgment so the world that he made to bear and sustain life begins to collapse. It's an undoing of Genesis 1 and 2. It's extraordinary and horrific at the same time. So God's judgments then in bowls 1 through 3, they are, they're severe. He brings pain, he brings suffering upon all those who remain in rebellion against him. He begins to decreate the very world he created to be life-sustaining. And so the picture that we have is one of unimaginable pain and suffering and death universally experienced by all those outside of Christ. Now this, this pain and suffering, this decreation does not belong to the people of God. Just like in Egypt, they are spared. But it's the very real consequence of all those who remain marked by the beast and bowing down to their idols. All those in those last days who refuse to be part of the redeemed. The vision of the bowls of these plagues, these first few, were given to John 2,000 years ago and have been for the church for 2,000 years a warning that these days are their coming. It's a warning to us. It's a warning to the world. A warning that we are supposed to take to them to let them know that the end that they think is going to take place apart from Christ is not the true ending of the real story. That horrific judgment is coming. Pain, suffering, death, decreation. And they will be dismantled with that if they are not in Christ. They're extreme and they're intended to be so. Not only to keep us on that narrow path of the gospel and not only to wake up the world, but they reveal the extreme nature of the, of the plagues. Not only the seals and the trumpets, but certainly the bulls. They reveal the justness and the goodness of God. You say, well, how is that possible? How, does the, how do these extreme judgments reveal the justness of God? Point number two, the justness of God's justice. The justness of God's justice. Verses five through seven are, are really interesting here. We, the, 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 the teaching on the bowls, we have one, two, and three, and then there's a break here. There's a, an, an interlude before we get to uh, bowls four through seven. And I think it's much needed you know, God is very gracious about how his people are going to hear this being read. And may, maybe you too. Maybe this, this interlude is for you as well. We hear about the universal nature that all people on earth, not just Egypt, not just a country, not just a king, but all people are going to experience these cataclysmic pain and suffering and death. And we hear about it, and, and even as Christians, we say, you know, I'm a Christian, I, I know God is good, I know God is just. We hear this, and I think, well, if you're going to be honest, it presses you, doesn't it? I mean, it presses on you, and, and you're strained by this teaching, and you may begin to wonder or question or maybe even doubt that these judgments can possibly be fair. Every single person outside of Christ is going to experience this. It seems so hard. Well, God knows that, and certainly this angel knows that, and he wants to bring some clarity to it. Look at verse 5. John says, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. 
And so this particular angel who was, don't you, I love this, there's, there's a lot of teaching on this, which we're not going to do, but maybe later. This angel had been charged by God to superintend the waters of the earth. Remember that the next time you're so worried about a drought coming upon us and us not. An angel superintended by God to be in charge of the waters of the earth. And it's this particular angel who wants to make sure we understand that God's actions are just. So he cries out so all can hear, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. This is what's called a a judgment doxology. I don't imagine many of you sing that during your family devotion times. We're going to do a judgment doxology at dinner tonight. You should. It's good. Holy are you. Holy are you, the one who is and the one who was. And you are holy, and because you are holy and you are just, it says you are bringing these judgments to pass. Good judges adjudicate crime. And God is doing just that. And so what this angel's doing is he's anticipating our complaints, is he not? This angel gets that we're going to hear it and be pressed by the severity and the universal cataclysmic nature of these judgments. And so he brings a great pause and he argues that they cannot be unjust because God is just and holy. In other words, he's saying justice, justice that we even know about and talk about, it is tied to and derived from the character and nature of who God is. We can't talk about justice without talking about who God is. And so the angel's saying it's tied to who he is. And not only is justice tied to who God is, how he does justice is tied to his holiness. Remember, we talked about holiness being the perfection of God and all that he is. And so by the angel calling God holy, he's saying not only is God just, but when God acts, every action of God, every just action of God is perfectly just. Because he is holy, everything that he does is perfect. And therefore, all justice and all judgment brought by God upon sinful man is perfect. Not too much and not too little but perfect justice because he is the perfect judge. And so the angel appeals to the character of God and he also appeals to the actions of God. Look at, uh, look at verse six. He's saying God can't be, it's impossible for God to be unjust because of who he is and it's impossible for God to be unjust because his actions are just. Verse six, for they, speaking of those who are going to be judged with bowls one through three, and then four through seven. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you, speaking of God, have given them blood to drink. It is what they, what? It is what they deserve. It's their just desert. In other words, the judgments of God fit the crimes. The justice of God is being exercised upon the crimes of man. All those who reject Christ remain citizens of Babylon. They retain the mark of the beast. And therefore, they are either implicitly or explicitly part of the persecution of the church. They participate in the persecution and murder of God's people. They deserve, according to God and the word of God, they deserve this punishment. So contrary to the bold judgments being what we would call a miscarriage of justice, God doing something that he ought not, they are in fact, listen, they are perfect justice. It is perfect justice being exercised by a perfectly just God. Severe because the crimes are severe. The punishments 
of the harmful and painful sores and the planet's water being turned to blood. The latter part of verse 6 again, it is what they, the unrepentant, deserve. It is fair. It is just. And I would say that it's good. Even the altar cries out to affirm this. Look at verse 7. John said, it, and, I, and I heard the altar saying. Now you think, well, how, how does an altar speak? It's apocalyptic genre. It may be the altar. It, it may be, it's very likely referring to the saints who have been martyred that were under the altar in Revelation 6. Remember, they were crying out, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It could be the saints. It could be the angel. It could be the altar itself. It doesn't matter. It's what the altar is saying that's important. It cries out emphatically, yes, yes, yes. True and just are the judgments of the Lord God Almighty. All his judgments, my beloved, listen. Regardless of how extreme they may be to your version of justice, all his judgments are perfectly just. All his judgments are perfectly good because he is the good, just God. In other words, he cannot be, at any point in time, he cannot be unjust. He cannot be too severe or not severe enough. And herein lies the problem, I think. I mean, we're, we're not very good when we exercise justice and judgment in our lives. We have a tendency when we exercise justice of various kinds. We, have, we let pride and we let greed and covetousness and hatred and, and bias, we let it get in the way. We're much more just with those outside of our family than we are those inside of our family. And we have a tendency to judge those who we don't know more than we judge those who we do know. So when we read about this universal and cataclysmic judgments of the seven bulls coming upon all mankind, we project our unjust justice onto the perfectly just God, and then we conclude wrongly that he cannot be doing it correctly or fairly or justly. We impugn God as being unjust, we begin to question his actions. We may go so far as to reject his judgments altogether. If, if you were here a few weeks ago, I shared with you how John Stott, John Stott is one of the foremost, was one of the foremost Anglican theologians of the 20th century. Toward the end of his life, he no longer believed in the doctrine of hell. He struggled so much with the severity and duration of God's justice in the context of hell, that he began to question hell and even whether or not God can be just in sentencing someone to it. This is what he writes, listen. He said, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal torment intolerable. He said, it would be easier to hold together the awful reality of hell and the universal reign of God, that is God being just, if hell means destruction the ultimate annihilation of the wicked rather than their eternal conscious torment. And so John Stott, truly one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, redefined hell. Took it out of the Bible and said, oh, we're going to redefine it. And he, re re he redefined it as God destroying rather than eternal conscious torment. He redefined it because he found it too brutal, too severe in duration, and therefore, he impugned, he impugned that if God did this, God could not be just. And so he redefined hell. My beloved, I, I would argue that <laughs> that's unwise. 
rather than redefining hell or questioning God's justice, I would argue it's better to hear the word of the water angel and know that God is just in all that he does. Or maybe go back to Moses, Deuteronomy 32.4, when Moses said, all your ways are just, that God cannot act in iniquity because he is perfectly equitable. Last year, if you were paying attention, I'm sure you were, in Dobbs versus Jackson, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned the 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade. And they ruled that the decision in Roe was unconstitutional. And they gave the right back to the states to um, regulate uh, the abortion industry. Uh, Many states had already had, they had anti-abortion laws on their books. So as soon as Dobbs was passed, it triggered those laws, and they went into place immediately, restricting a woman's ability to go murder her unborn child. The pro-abortionists, they of course, they came out and they accused the courts of what? Of acting unjustly. They said it's a conservative court, it was packed by Trump, and therefore it's denying a woman's right, a woman's just right to what? To murder her child. Pro-lifers saw the exact opposite. They saw the court ruling for the first time in 49 years as just and fair for the unborn child. Giving states the right to protect the life of the unborn once again from conception to birth. My beloved, whenever we believe, listen closely, whenever we believe that God's judgments against sinful men are unjust or unfair and we begin to impugn God as being unjust or unfair, we are speaking and thinking and acting just like those who are pro-death. We are allowing our predisposition or our personal preference to get in the way of true justice. And as a result, we set ourselves up against God. I don't need to tell you that's always a bad thing. It's always bad to set yourself up against a holy, just God. Justice is not defined by you. Justice is not defined by the courts. And justice is not defined by the culture. Justice is in accordance with who God is and what God has revealed clearly in his word. Now we can either accept that simple truth and align our lives, this church, and strive for the culture to live justly according to God and his word or we can rebel against it and find ourselves going against the creator of the universe. Again, unwise to an infinite degree. So first we've seen, one, the severity of God's justice, I pray. Number two, the justness of God's justice. It's always good, it's always fair, it's always right. I want to show you one more thing before I close. John sees bulls four and five poured out on the earth, and they reveal, I think, they did for me, and I hope they do for you, great clarity on how good and just these judgments truly are, how necessary they are if we're asking God to come and make things right. right, Our great hope is that Christ is going to come and he's going to make all things new, right? He's going to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. If we really want that, if we really, really want a restored creation, then we see that his judgments are absolutely necessary. Point number three, the necessity of God's justice. Look at verse eight. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun 
and it, the sun, was allowed to scorch people with fire. So the fourth bowl, very likely it's metaphoric of the sun's intensity is, is somehow supernaturally increased and it's able to scorch the unregenerate. They, are, they experience severe sunburn, burn like that of fire or heat. You know what I'm talking about. It's that it, when you were younger, if you were like me, my generation, we go to the beach and we would bring baby oil. That's brilliant. Baby oil. And we would literally cook in the sun. And then three o'clock would roll around and we were completely red and sunburned. And we think, how did that happen? Well, this is the picture of, of this fourth bowl being poured out on all mankind. We're all going to be covered with baby oil and we're going to be burned from the sun. Look at verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had poured, who had power over these judgments. So, uh, bowls four and five, there's an amazing revelation that come out from the unrepentant here. And I want us to catch it because I think it will help us It'll help us understand how those we love may end up being judged. Um, they know, they know they're being punished. And they know they're being punished by God. This is so extraordinary. Look at the latter part of verse 9 again. John tells us they cursed, they're being burned metaphorically by the sun, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Oh, this is extraordinary, my beloved. I hope it catches your attention. They don't blame their suffering on their circumstances or luck or chance or the bad decisions they've made. They blame their suffering on God and claim that it's only God who has the ability to exercise the power of these supernatural plagues. So they know they're being punished and they know they're being punished by God. It's an amazing revelation that we get from the unrepentant. But instead of recognizing that it's their sins, and the rebellion against God that it's bringing the punishment, instead of seeing that and turning from that and repenting, what do they do? They curse God's name. Now, I, I don't need to tell you, again, that is infinitely foolish to curse the creator of the universe. We are creatures. We are lowly, little creatures. And yet, they're being punished. They not only curse his name, but John tells us, the latter part of verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. So they're convinced they don't deserve it. And they're convinced what? That God is being unfair. That God is being unjust. And they continue. It's amazing. They curse God. They will not repent. They will not give him glory. They continue in the exact behavior that brought the plagues in the first place. There's no cognition, there's no turning, there's no repentance, there certainly is no faith. Now, if you're a parent, you, you, you've experienced this type of hardness of heart in a child. I'm sure you have. I, I had three boys, so I certainly saw this hardness of heart in my, my beautiful, beautiful, beloved sons. <clears throat> you hear screaming and crying. You walk into the room and one of your sons is hitting your other son over the head with a lightsaber. Purely hypothetical, right? So you wisely intervene as a good parent, and you stop the lightsaber beating, and you pull your son aside, and you sit your son down, and you explain to your son why it's hateful to God and hateful to your brother to whack him on the head with a lightsaber. You explain why it's wrong. You explain why you're going to discipline. This is just good parenting, right? Why the act is so grievous. And then you properly discipline your child. And as you're disciplining your child, 
you hear your child mumble under his breath, I hate you, and I wish I had hit him again. So being the good parent you are, you have to now discipline the response to the discipline, which you do. Now, your son has enough sense at this point in time to keep his mouth quiet. He realizes if he says it again, he's going to get another discipline. So you leave the room. Five minutes later, you hear more screaming. And the son you just punished, the son you just disciplined, is whacking your other son on the head again. The son refused, obviously, to take responsibility for his actions. He refused to repent and honor his father. And instead, he cursed the father's name and he blamed his brother, all in the context of being disciplined. All in the context of just receiving discipline. This is the picture we have here, but on an eternal scale. God the Father and those who will not repent and believe. The picture is the unrepentant being punished by God with these final plagues. And instead of repenting and turning, they continue in their sin. They curse God's name and they refuse to give him glory. It is a most extraordinary picture, my beloved, of those who are receiving the judgment of the bulls. Look at verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Now if you remember the the beast as we talked about, it represents all governments and all powers that have come under the influence of Satan and are acting on Satan's behalf. In John's day, obviously it was the Roman Empire with Emperor Domitian at the helm. At the time that these fifth bowls will be poured out, it will represent every government, every authority, every power on earth that set itself up against God. And John tells us here that that God in the end, he will punish all these Satan-led governments with punitive darkness. And again, you say, now wait a second, darkness again, I'm, I'm going right back to Egypt, I'm going to back to that ninth plague. That plague right before the plague of death was what? Darkness came over all the land, except Israel. This beam of light just cast upon God's people, but all the rest of the land was plunged into darkness. Listen to Exodus 10. We're told that Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. What a sight. Now I want to show you something. This is extraordinary. The degree to which man's heart will remain in rebellion in those last days is exemplified here in the darkness that came upon Israel. Egypt. After the ninth plague, if you remember, Pharaoh finally, Pharaoh says, it was conditional, but Pharaoh finally said, all right, go. After the darkness, the darkness was so severe, the punitive darkness had such a psychological impact on the people of Egypt, and Pharaoh in particular, that he said to Moses, go. Listen, Exodus 10, 24, after the plague of darkness, Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the people, Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So he finally said go is conditional and that's why the 10th plague had to come. Not so in the last days when the fifth bowl of darkness is poured out. When the whole world is engulfed in punitive darkness. Look at the latter part of verse 10. How do people respond in those days? Not like Pharaoh 
people nod their tongues in anguish. So we know the darkness represents pain and suffering of some kind. It wasn't just dark. It was a suffering darkness. People nod their tongues in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And so you have a repeat of the fourth bowl. The plague brings this pain and suffering and yet John tells us that in this darkness they're, they're gnawing their tongue. They're, you know that, you get that imagery, right? That was, that was metaphoric then. It makes sense now when you're in pain. You'll bite your tongue. You'll gnaw on your tongue. The pain is so severe. But what's extraordinary is that even as they're gnawing their tongue, they have the ability and desire to do what? To curse God's name. To curse the God of heaven. They're in anguish, knowing that it's God who's punishing them. And instead of repenting, they curse him. And it says they refuse to repent of their deeds. They refuse to turn. They continued what? In their worship of the creation rather than the creator. They continued in their sin and rebellion. They refused to repent. They refused to follow Christ. They refused to be saved. It's, a, it's, it's the most wretched state of mankind that you can possibly imagine. Receiving the full wrath of God, bowls one through five, and in that wrath saying, I will not call you God. I will not worship you. They are C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory he used a term, I remember the first time I read it, it struck me. He calls this condition, these people, immortal whores. Immortal whores. That's how bad the state of man is, apart from Jesus Christ. Instead of repenting and turning, they continue running headlong into the flames of hell. Headlong. Friends, with the pouring out of the fifth bowl, we have a clear picture of those who refuse to confess their sins and turn to Christ and be saved. God justly brings painful sores, rivers and seas of blood, scorching heat and anguish from perfect pitch darkness. It's a picture of suffering. Listen, it's a picture of suffering and misery in these last days never known to man on earth at this point in time and, and never will be again prior to the consummation of human history. It's worse than all the Holocaust, all the plagues, all the wars, all the famines, all the pandemics of mankind put together. It's that bad. And yet, still, they remain in rebellion against God. It's an unfathomable picture, my beloved. The most severe and extreme measures taken by God to compel people to repent and believe and they remain in rebellion and hatred against God, cursing his name and not believing. Proverbs 19.3, this is the picture. And it's fulfilled here in these last days. When a man's folly brings his ways to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. The more they suffered, the more they cursed God. The more they experienced pain from punishment, the more they refused to repent and believe. Here they are, my beloved, on the shores of the lake of fire. On the shores, that glassy sea mingled with fire we looked at. They're on the shores. And rather than singing to God like the 144,000 that are redeemed, they are cursing God's name, refusing to be saved. My beloved, we, we've been given, I believe, this weighty revelation. It's been given to us through John not only, 
This is an obvious application. Not only to encourage you to stay on the straight and narrow path of the gospel, because this end is horrific. And if there's no fear in your heart of deviating from Christ and experiencing this justice, then reread this again and again until the Holy Spirit makes it clear to you this is how it ends outside of Christ. But I also think it should compel us to preach the gospel. Right? It should compel us to persevere to the end and it should compel us to preach the gospel. To all those in our mission field, we know this narrative. It's been given to you. And if you didn't know it before now, now you know. So you're culpable. You have knowledge. You have revelation from God that the judgments are going to be this, this severe. I would argue for some of you, if not all of you, one of the most terrifying thoughts you can have, and it, this is true for me, one of the most terrifying thoughts we can have as Christians is picturing someone you love so much Think of someone that you love most here. It may be a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a grandchild or a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker. The thought of them experiencing these extreme plagues, knowing it's only a foretaste of the eternal damnation they will experience in the lake of fire. I don't know that there's a more horrific thought that we can have towards those in our lives. This revelation, as difficult as it is to hear, it's given to us to compel us in love to share the gospel, to tell people of Christ that it doesn't have to end like this. But it's also given to us, my beloved, I believe, and here's the subtle piece, and I'm going to close on this. It's given to us so that we know as believers if someone continues to rebel against God, if someone refuses to be saved and continues to curse God's name in their hate-filled state, we, listen, you will desire God's justice on that person no matter how much you love them. You will desire God's justice. If they are not going to be saved, you will call upon God to judge that person, that beloved friend, that beloved husband, that beloved wife. You will ask God to do that because that will be your desire too. How could I say such a thing when we now have heard the severity of the bulls and the duration of eternal wrath? How, can, how could I possibly utter such a statement like that? I mean, if you're thinking about people you love, you think, how could you say that? How could you say that about someone I love? Whenever we discuss, as Christians, the wrath of God or the horrors of hell, we must always remember Christ our Lord. Whenever we're talking about God's judgment or God's justice or we're talking about eternal damnation, we must remember Jesus because he knows, he knows the wrath of God. He knows the horrors of hell better than anyone else. Listen with all your might. It was the innocent son of God who on the cross bore the painful sores of a scourged brow, a blistered back, and nail-pierced hands and feet. He knows it. It was the kind and compassionate Savior of the world who allowed his sinless blood to flow from the cross so that a world polluted by blood and sin and death could be what? Could be washed clean and made new by him. It was the Holy One of God, 
the beloved Son of God who ascended the cross, and you know this, he bore that punitive darkness from noon to three o'clock, the hell that we rightly deserved, he experienced virtually in our place in order to what? To take the disabling darkness that we deserve and give us light and give us life in his kingdom instead. In other words, my beloved, there is, there never has been and never will be a greater expression of love, a greater expression of sacrifice, no greater work to save Sinners like us, whose just desert are the bulls, than Christ taking the wrath of God and the horrors of hell on the cross for us. No greater display of love, no greater display of sacrifice. And so here's the kicker. To refuse such an extreme expression of love, to say no to love of Christ on the cross. My friends, to reject such a selfless sacrifice on your behalf, Christ died to save you. The second person of the holy triune God. To reject that love, to reject that sacrifice, is deserving of the most extreme eternal punishment possible. The just desert of gazing upon a crucified Savior upon the cross and saying, no, I will not be saved and cursing his name when he came to love us that much, that's deserving of a thousand hells. Even the Apostle Paul, who we are told had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for the Jews, he went so far as to say this in Romans 9.3. He said, I I wish that I, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Even someone who loved the lost that much, he considered the refusal of the sacrifice of Christ, the refusal of the love of Christ, so grievous and so violent that he said they're worthy of damnation. Jew or Gentile. 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul said this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, no love for the Lord who gave his life to save sinners, Paul said what? Let him be accursed. Let him be judged. And then he said, our Lord come. In other words, when Paul considered those he loved most, refusing the love of Christ, when he considered Jew and Gentile rejecting the sacrifice that Christ made, the greatest extension of love by God to man through Christ ever made, he not only said is justice proper, is hell right. He said it's good. It's good that those who refuse Christ are judged and perish eternally. I would argue that if you know Christ, if you don't now, then you will feel the exact same. You'll feel the exact same. My beloved, even a thousand lifetimes after the last day when God judges the living and the dead, a thousand lifetimes when all those who reject the love of Christ and the gospel of grace have only become acquainted with the eternal state of fire and darkness, you know they will still curse God's name. They will still curse the God of heaven. 
A thousand lifetimes after that last day, they will still refuse to repent of their evil deeds. They will still refuse to give honor and glory to God, the honor and glory he rightly deserves. Now, I'm not saying for a moment they won't want out of the pain and anguish of hell. We know they will. We know they will. I'm saying their continued hatred for God, listen, will supersede their hatred for hell. Their hatred for God, their hatred for Christ, their hatred for the gospel will be greater than the hatred of the torment of hell itself. For all eternity, the occupants of hell will choose to remain in eternal damnation rather than worship and serve the living God. Their hatred for God is that great forever. Now if that's true, my beloved, then when you enter into the heavenly realm and you see God's glory and you see your Savior face to face and the sacrifice the Lamb made to save you, you will, like Paul, say, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You will say that and you will desire it even for those that you love most now. You won't want them in heaven cursing God's name. You won't want them saying disparaging remarks about your Savior. It doesn't matter who they are, husband, wife, child, grandchild, neighbor, best friend, you will desire as God desires their what? Their just punishment. Now you say, now I want them to be saved. I pray for them, I preach to them, I live the gospel. Yes, now, yes. You don't want them to perish now. But on that last day, when God judges the living and the dead, the gospel ceases to be able to be brought to those who are lost. And on that day, you will desire what God desires for them. You'll desire they be cast out of heaven. You'll desire they be cast into hell. You will desire that they suffer justly for rejecting the divine expression of love and salvation through Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've had Christians ask me, it's a compelling question, how can I possibly have peace and joy in heaven with God the Father, Son, and Spirit and the saints when I know people that I love are suffering in hell? That's a great question. I would offer this exact same counsel that because their loved ones continue to hate their Savior, they will not want them in the Savior's presence. They will not. My beloved, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bold judgments, even hell itself, they are just consequences for all those who refuse eternal life, all those who say no to heaven. Far from being a miscarriage of justice, God's severe judgments are both just and they are necessary. So rather than question his justness like our friend John Stott or foolishly think that God is being unfair or cruel with the unsaved, I would compel you to hear the truth of bowls one through five in all their terror and do two things. One, if you're in Christ, oh, you should be praising the Lord. If you're in Christ, these bowls are not yours. The seals are not yours. The trumpets are not yours. And hell is not yours. If you're in Christ and you heard this sermon today, you should be praising God. You should be skipping out of this church. And this whole week should be one captured in your heart and mind saying, I cannot believe that I am redeemed. And then you should live as the redeemed son or daughter that you are in great faith and great obedience to his word. That's a right response. 
Another response will be preaching and teaching. You will preach and teach the gospel of grace to all those in your mission field who do not know him. If this, in fact, is their end, if, in fact, their end is not just the judgment of the bulls and, my beloved, not even hell itself, if their end is spending an eternity cursing the creator they were made to worship, if it's that bad, and it is, then we ought to, if we love them, even a little bit, we ought to tell them about Christ, should we not? We ought to tell them that they can be saved, that if they repent of their sins now and they turn to Christ and they trust in God to save them through his blood, that they can be part of the redeemed instead of part of the cursed. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a weight here in this teaching that is beyond us. It weighs heavy on our flesh and we have a tendency to reject it. So I ask that you would be gracious, Holy Spirit, with us today. Holy Spirit, take these teachings which are so clear. Make them known to us in both their goodness and in their justness. Enable us, Father, if We entered here with a different perspective about the justness of God and the punishment of sinful man. Change our understanding this morning that we might not only rejoice properly over the fact that Christ has saved us out of this, but that we should pray and preach to all those who have yet to be redeemed. This is your story, Lord. This is how you say it ends. We believe that to be true. In light of this truth, I pray that we would live accordingly with great joy and great responsibility. I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.